It's one thing to take the boy out of the country. It's another thing to take the country out of the boy. It's one thing to take the girl out of the city. It's another thing to take the city out of the girl. It's one thing to take the Israelites out of Egypt. It's another thing to take Egypt out of the Israelites. Most, if not all of us, are greatly influenced by our culture. Whether we are born and raised in the shackles of Egyptian slavery or born and raised in the freedom of the United States of America, just about all of us are touched and tainted, influenced and impacted by our culture. It's my belief that the minority shapes culture and then the majority is shaped by the culture. A culture could be defined and described as a particular language or set of values, priorities, perspective, worldview that a particular culture holds. You are a byproduct of your culture. You are influenced by the American culture. You're influenced by the Southern culture. You're even influenced by the church culture. This influence that a culture has over its individuals is just as prevalent 3,500 years ago as it is today. Here's with that in mind, I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 32. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. This morning, I want to read for you this chapter in its entirety, all 35 verses. I want to talk to you about how sacred cows make tasty hamburgers. Exodus chapter 32, let's begin at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster upon your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring upon his people the disaster he had threatened. 
Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and <laughs> out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp, said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Israelites, all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have set, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go. Lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. Moses had been on top of the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites gathered around his brother Aaron and they said, come, make gods for us. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. From their vantage point, Moses had his head stuck in the clouds. They wanted to promote Aaron. They wanted gods they could touch and see. So Aaron said, bring me your gold jewelry. They brought the gold earrings. He put them into the fire, fashioned a golden calf using a tool. When he saw that this pleased the Israelites, he said, tomorrow we're going to have a worship service. We will uh, get up early and we'll worship the Lord. For this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. 
Next morning, they got up early. They got to church for the first service. They went in and they worshiped with burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then they had lunch. They sat down to eat and to drink. And then they rose up in revelry. That word revelry means sexual promiscuity, immorality. What makes this so astounding is that just a few weeks earlier, God himself had given his people his very word. And the people vowed that they would keep the word of God. And here we are just a couple of weeks later, and they're doing the one thing they vowed they would never do. God himself gave the Ten Commandments. He engraved them on tablets of stone using his own divine finger. Commandment number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. It can also be translated, you shall have no other gods besides me. God is extremely jealous for his people. He is exclusive in his claim over your life. You shall have no other gods before God or besides God. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or image out of anything. Heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters below. And here we are just a few weeks later. And even though the Israelites had said everything the Lord has declared, we will do. In a matter of a couple of weeks, they do the thing that they vowed they would never do. How is that? Why is that? How and why is it possible that the people of God can in one moment vow for holiness and the next moment they can disobey that holiness and do the the direct opposite thing that they vowed that they would do? How is that possible? I think the Israelite problem is the same problem that you have. It's the same problem that I have. That many times we love our sin more than we love our Savior. How is it possible for a a young girl to say that she will keep herself pure until her wedding day and yet somehow, some way, she finds herself in the back seat of her boyfriend's car more Friday nights than not? How is it possible That a man who makes a vow before God and others that he will only have himself for his wife. He will forever be uh, united to her and dedicated to her. And yet after 15 years of marriage, there's a co-worker who seems to give him a wink and a nod and pay attention to him. And she's so easy to talk to. And how is it that he finds himself doing what he vowed he would never do? How is it possible that a a young boy can say that he will never lie, and yet when that boy is asked, did you take the last cookie, even though he did, he'll say no. Or an elementary student, when asked the question, did you look on Sally's paper for the spelling test, and that student would say no, even though that student looked. Or the person who is called into the supervisor's office, asked the question, did you take this that did not belong to you but belonged to the company? And the coworker, the employee would say, absolutely not, even though he's guilty. Or an individual who is being audited by the IRS asking the question, did you falsify your tax return? And the person say, absolutely not, all the while knowing that they did. How is it possible that we could be guilty of doing the things that we vowed we would never do. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceptive. It is beyond all cure. We are touched and tainted by total depravity. And many times we love our sin even more than we love our Savior. 
That's the Israelite problem, but that's not just an Israelite problem. That's a, that's an American problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's a people problem. We get to the point where we crave disobedience more than we crave devotion unto Christ. It's not by accident that Aaron fashioned this idol into a calf. In the Egyptian culture, the cow, the bull, the calf was the symbol of strength and power. And certainly Aaron and the Israelites understood that it took a great deal of power to liberate 600,000 men from Egyptian captivity, not counting women and children. Certainly it took great power for God to liberate nearly 2 million individuals on that fateful night when the death angel passed over all of Egypt. Certainly it took great power, strength, for the Lord to part the Red Sea so they could cross on dry ground. Certainly it took great power for God to provide manna in the desert to eat and water from a rock to drink. Certainly it would have taken great power, great strength. So it's, it, it, it makes sense that Aaron would fashion this idol in the image of a calf. The problem is that that calf is dumb, deaf, and mute. It's not living. It's not active. That Golden calf cannot lead anybody out of a brown paper bag, let alone out of the Egyptian desert. It is Douglas Stewart who says in his commentary of Exodus, the Israelites wanted a God who allowed them to live however they want. Wanted a God who would permit them to do whatever they wished. One of the God who would not place upon them any requirements or regulations. In other words, they wanted to be religious, but not holy. 3,500 years have come and gone. Not a whole lot has changed. We still live in a culture that wants to be very religious, but not really very holy. Every culture crafts sacred cows. You think to yourself, well, we don't have any sacred cows. I imagine that you don't have a little shrine that you bow to every morning before you get up and go to work or go to school. But don't be duped and don't be fooled into thinking that you and I don't have sacred cows. A sacred cow is anything that competes with Christ for the place of supremacy in your life. That's a sacred cow. Anything that competes with Christ for the place of supremacy in your life. Even a good thing can become a sacred cow. A bad thing can become a sacred cow. Anything can become a sacred cow. Something that competes with Christ for the place of supremacy in your life. Oh, in the American culture, we have a lot of sacred cows. One of the most prominent sacred cow is the sacred cow of prosperity, success. We believe that we're entitled to success. We're entitled to financial success. We believe that we're entitled to the bigger house and the better car and the newest technology. We think as if this is an endowed right that we have, that we're entitled to being successful. We're entitled to having a bunch of stuff. But need I remind you that one day Jesus was approached by a would-be follower who said, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And the immediate response of Jesus was, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean that there were times that for Jesus, he used a rock as his pillow and the stars as his blanket. What he's telling this would-be follower is that if you're going to follow me, I need you to know up front, this is not a get-quick-rich plan. This is not something where you can just uh, follow me and I'll give you prosperity because there may be times when the animal kingdom has it better than you. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no permanent place to lay his head. And there may be times when you're homeless. There may be times when you're destitute. There may be times when you don't have all the stuff that your neighbors do. But I just want you to know up front that following me will not always equate to prosperity. Yet in the American culture, what we craft is an image of Christianity that leads to financial prosperity and success. For we look up to those companies that are successful, don't we? They have the fat profit line. They have numerous employees. They have wealthy shareholders. We take that same corporate American mentality into the church. And we celebrate the churches that have nickels and noses. We celebrate the churches that have buildings and budgets. We celebrate those churches that have programs and personalities. We take that same mentality into the church when we say this is a successful church if it has a lot of people and it has a lot of money and it has great programs and it has tremendous personalities and it has fantastic and excellent facilities. That is a successful congregation. Even think about it. How do we define a successful Sunday? What do we say was a good Sunday? Somebody asked you, did you have a good Sunday today? Oh yeah, it's a great Sunday. Well, how did you know it was a great Sunday? We couldn't find any parking spaces. I mean, the place was packed. A lot of people were in church today. And the offering was good. The offering was good. It must be a good Sunday. And at the end, during the invitation, there was movement. There were decisions that were made. Now let me be very clear. Jesus calls us to make disciples Go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says. But I'm convinced that the American church is more enamored with decisions than disciples. Making enough decisions, counting enough individuals to place on the denominational report, I think that's more beneficial to the church. Decisions over disciples. Let me ask you this question. What happens on a given Sunday when the attendance is off? When the giving is low? When the invitation comes and goes and nobody moves? Does that mean it was not a successful Sunday? Now, I want to be as prosperous as the next guy, but I've got to keep that in check, and so do you. Because it's possible for you to craft a sacred cow of prosperity and success where you define success for your life, for this faith family, in the very same way that corporate America defines success and prosperity. And my advice to you and to me is to take that sacred cow and smash it. Destroy it before it destroys you. Because sacred cows make tasty hamburgers. There's another sacred cow in the American culture. It's the sacred cow of happiness. Our founding fathers put into the original documents that we have certain inalienable rights given us by our creator among them life liberty and the pursuit of happiness we have individuals that are pursuing happiness and it's that pursuit of happiness that makes decisions prompts them to do certain things and not do other things 
like you, I've had married couples come to me. And they are Christian couples, but they say to me, you know what? We think this marriage is over. We think that divorce is the only option. And I sit there and I say, why? Why would you come to this conclusion? And the response goes something like this. Well, we're not happy. And certainly God would not want us to be in this unhappy scenario. It's not even healthy for us to be together, they say. We're not happy. It's not healthy. We can't get along. Um, we're, we're, we've grown apart. We have nothing in common. We have nothing to talk about. We're just existing, coexisting. And, and I want her to be happy. And I want him to be happy. And surely God wants us to be happy. Therefore, because we have no happiness, we don't want to waste a bunch of years. We just want to go ahead and cut bait so we can go ahead and move along and, and, and then find somebody that will make us happy. People make decisions to leave churches sometimes. Why? Because I'm not happy. Just not happy. Not happy here. Not happy with the people. You know, not happy because of decisions that leadership made. Not happy because of the music or volume or the length of the sermon. Not happy because of what was done 17 years ago or what was said 12 years ago. And I really just can't get over what was done or said 17 years ago or 12 years ago. So because I'm not happy, I think I'm just going to go and look for another church. I think people change jobs sometimes simply because they're not happy. Not happy with the boss, not happy with coworkers, not happy with the work. The work that used to be so rewarding and beneficial now, it's just work. And I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm just not happy. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me this morning. But I'm really not sure if God is preoccupied about us being happy. I am sure that God is very preoccupied about us being holy. So God wants us to be holy in our marriage and holy in the church and holy at the workplace and holy in everything that we do. God wants us to be holy and sometimes to manufacture that holiness in us, he allows us to endure some unhappy experiences. So the greatest goal is not my personal happiness, but the greatest value and the greatest goal for the follower of Christ is holiness. So God longs for us to be holy. What do you do with a sacred cow of happiness? Smash it. Destroy it before it destroys you. Because sacred cows, they do make tasty hamburgers. There are other sacred cows in our culture. Perhaps one of the biggest sacred cows in the American culture is that of tolerance. And you and I understand that uh, at the bedrock of of most religious conversations is this fundamental assumption of tolerance. And many times tolerance is equal to anti-Christianity. It's, it's anti-Christianity under the guise of tolerance. And tolerance originates in places like Washington, D.C. and Hollywood. Tolerance is formed out of a postmodern mentality. The postmodern mentality is built on ideas that are divergent and paradoxical. What do I mean by that? Divergent in the sense that according to a postmodern mentality, truth can be uh, multiple correct answers. It's divergent. And at the same time, it's paradoxical. So some of those quote-unquote direct or quote-unquote correct answers can be apparent contradictions. 
When this mentality is taken into religious life, the postmodern individual in the American culture says there is truth in all forms of religion. And if there's truth in all forms of religion, there's also something false in all forms of religion. So the postmodern mentality says that, that, that no religion has the corner on truth. You can learn something from Christianity and you can learn something from Islam. You can learn something from Judaism. You can learn something from your Hindu individuals and friends and you can learn something from Buddhists. You can learn something from just about anybody because every path is a path and while it may contradict at times and while it may converge at times, ultimately it's all leading to the same destination. So it really doesn't matter what path you get on, just wholeheartedly believe the path that you're on and eventually you'll make it to God. It's divergent. It's paradoxical. A problem with this is multifaceted. Let me just mention a couple of problems. Number one, the three biggest world religions are Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All three of those world views declare exclusivity. What I mean is all three of those say, we're right and nobody else is right. Or in other words, we're right and everybody else is wrong. Anybody who's a devout Christian, anybody who's a devout Jew, anybody who's a devout Muslim, all three of them will have to say, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So it, it, is, it is paradoxical to say that all three of those are right. And beyond that, we as Christians believe that the evidence is overwhelmingly in our favor. The evidence is overwhelmingly in our favor because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Now, either Jesus is Lord or he's a liar. He's got to be one of the two. There is no middle ground. Jesus never waffled or wavered on his identity. He acknowledged he is God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. He acknowledges he's not another God, a lesser God, a creation of God. He is God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus always uh, unwaveringly said that he is God in the flesh. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, either you believe him or you don't, but Jesus has to be either Lord or a liar. And the evidence, the evidence of who he said he is and what he did and the miracles he performed and the resurrection from the dead and the, and, and the evidence is so overwhelming that the tomb is empty and they haven't found his bones and they're never gonna find his bones because he was literally bodily, physically raised from the dead. The evidence is so overwhelming that Jesus is Lord that you and I can say unequivocally that we follow Christ because of who he is. He is Lord. Nobody else is anything like him. He's in a class all by himself. So what do you do with the sacred cow of tolerance? I'm not telling you to be rude, but I'm telling you not to bow the knee to the sacred cow of tolerance. You need to smash it, destroy it before it destroys you. Because the sacred cow, it can make tasty hamburgers. Two weeks ago, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention at a panel discussion, this topic of idols in America came up. And someone made the statement, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, that in our culture today, some of the most prominent idols in America are race, gender, 
and political party. And we as Americans bow the knee to race, gender, and a particular political party. And I agree, that's exactly what we do. We bow the knee to race. Our race is better than any other race. Another person's race believes his or her race is better than any other race. And everything is seen through the lens of racism. It was Tony Evans who said, what we've done in the church and in our culture is we have emphasized the adjective more than the noun. Now, an adjective is supposed to modify a noun, but it's not supposed to be more important than the noun. But in our culture, what we've done is we've made the adjective more important than the noun. He said, let me give you an example. I am not, according to Tony Evans, he says, I am not a black preacher. I'm a preacher who happens to be black. Because in our culture, what we've done is we have emphasized race and the adjective even more than the noun. Now, I, for one, will tell you that racism is an issue. I will quote to you what my father in the ministry have heard him say constantly. That in this country, we've had two great awakenings and racism has survived both of them. Robert Smith will say that all people are racist. White people are racist. Black people are racist. Hispanics are racist. Asian people are racist. All people are racist because racism is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. And so, yes, we are racist, but we ought not to bow the knee to a particular race. Gender has become an idol. And let's just be honest that fundamental to our identity is who we are, male or female. One of the greatest tricks that the adversary plays on any individual is to confuse gender identity. Because at the very core of who you are from the very beginning of time, I knew I was a boy. And girls knew I, that, that girls knew that, that they were girls. And so this is fundamental to our identity. But even more fundamental to the fact that I'm a man is my identity in Christ. I'm not just a male Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be male. I, my identity is in Jesus Christ. My identity, the fundamental identity of who I am is not even my gender. My identity is the Christ of my life. That's my identity. It was Kevin Smith who said, we have bowed the knee to a particular party, politically speaking. And I want to tell you that Jesus is not a Democrat simply because he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> and Jesus is not a Republican just because he's pro-life. What Kevin Smith said was that in America, and even in the church, we've taken the dung of a donkey and an elephant. We've rolled it up and we've smoked it. And it has become our addiction of choice. There was a calming that came over that crowd, just like this crowd. Because he's right. He's right because I, I don't know if Jesus is a Democrat. I don't know if Jesus is Republican. I don't think he's really either Democrat or Republican. I think he's king of all kings and Lord of all lords. He's greater than any political party in this country or any country. Jesus is king all by himself. What do you do with the idols of race and gender and political party? 
When you acknowledge that everything has its place, but if it becomes an idol, smash it, destroy it, or it will destroy you. Sacred cows that make tasty hamburgers. Now, I've just been talking about some idols, and I haven't even touched the idol of sex or the idol of shopping or the idol of sports. Have not even mentioned the idol of child worship. Well, John Rosemond says that we are raising a generation of child-centered homes instead of parent-centered homes where the child calls the shots because every child gets a trophy instead of mom and dad demonstrating their God-given authority and responsibility of being the leader of the home. I even talked about that yet because we don't have time. If we stop, if, if we stop and think about all the idols that we've constructed, not only in the culture, but also in the church, it's overwhelming, isn't it? An idol, a sacred cow, is anything that competes with Christ for the place of supremacy in your life. What does God do with an idol? He said to Moses, uh, leave me alone. Let my anger burn against these people. I will destroy them and I'll make you into a great nation. Moses begins a dialogue with God. Oh, but God, let me remind you of the promises, the covenant that you've made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't want the Egyptians to say that that God just liberated the Israelites, brought them into the desert, only to then have uh, them annihilated from the place of, from the face of the earth. Verse 14, God relented. He did not do the disaster that he had threatened to do. At first read, it sounds like that Moses changed the mind of God. But in Psalm 106, it says that God's mind was changed, not because of the persuasive power of Moses, but because of the overwhelming passion of the Lord. It was the love of God that prompted him to relent. God is so madly in love with you, child of God. He is so madly in love with you that he will remove all the stops so that you can be with him forever. It is his overwhelming agape love, unconditional, unmerited. It is his love that caused him to relent from sending the calamity that he had threatened. Moses made his way back down the uh, mountain. He was met halfway by his aide, Joshua. They heard the noise from the camp and Joshua said, that's a war cry. Moses says, that's not the cry of victory. It's not the cry of defeat. That's the drunken stupor and singing of a karaoke bar. That's the sound of a frat party. That's the sound of flirtatious men chasing women and flirtatious women chasing men. That's the sound of, of a brothel on Bourbon Street. That's the sound of sexual promiscuity and idolatry. That's the sound of Israel out of control. He made his way down to the foot of the mountain. And when he saw the rebellion... When he saw the graphic, lewd sexual acts, when he saw what was done in daylight and so vile before God, righteous indignation rose up inside of Moses. He took the tablets of stone. He threw them against the ground. They shattered into pieces. Church, when was the last time that the very sight of sin provoked anger inside of you? 
Moses was angry. He was angry because of the breaking of covenant. He was broken over the breaking of covenant. When was the last time you were broken over the breaking of covenant in your life? In the life of others, oh, we get provoked, don't we? We get provoked when somebody cuts us off on the interstate. We get provoked when our team loses. We get provoked when we open up the utility bill and it's double for no apparent reason. We get provoked for a lot of things. But when was the last time that you were provoked over the sight of sin in your life? When was the last time you were provoked over the sight of sin in the life of your brother and sister? When was the last time you were broken over the breaking of covenant? When was the last time that you grieved? When was the last time that you wept? When was the last time that your tears were your food? When you realized the sin that you choose over your Savior? When was the last time you were broken over the sacred cows in your life? When was the last time you were broken over the sin in a dear friend, a dear brother, a dear sister? When was the last time you were provoked? to righteous indignation. Oh, my friends, many times we get provoked for all the wrong reasons. We get mad for things that God cares very little about. But the things that are at the heart of God, we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. When was the last time that you were provoked at the very sight of your sin? The grace of the passage is that God gave them an opportunity to repent, and many did. In fact, the Levites came forward, and Moses said to the Levites, strap a sword to your side and go and preach the gospel. And anyone who does not repent and be reconciled to God, slaughter them. Pretty graphic, don't you think? On that day, 3,000 people were killed. 3,000 out of a couple of million. 3,000 people died that day. The next morning, Moses said, you have committed a great sin. Your sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Don't miss that. Your sin is great, but God's grace is greater. So who knows? I'll go and maybe I can make atonement for your sin. I will stand as your mediator. I'll be the go-between between you and a holy God. And maybe I can be your atonement, your mediator. Moses made his way up the mountain. He confessed the sin of the people. Lord, this is a great sin. Please atone for their sin. If it means that you need to blot my name out of your book, blot my name and not theirs. What a great mediator, right? Blot my name, not theirs, out of your book. And God looked at Moses and he realizes that Moses is a good deliverer. He, he has great intentions, but the blood of Moses won't cover the sin of anybody. Continue with the plan, he says. Follow the angel. I will deal with my people. The Lord says, when it comes time, I will punish them. You get to the end of the passage, and I wonder, when did God punish his people? Some say the answer is given in verse 35. God sent the plague upon the people because of what they had done with the calf Aaron had made. Others say that the punishment of God was not fully meted out until 722 BC when the Assyrians came in and overtook the northern kingdom of Israel. Still others say, no, no, it was 586 BC when those barbaric Babylonians came in and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah. That's the last uh, standing of God's holy people, his remnant. But I want to suggest to you 
that God dealt with his people on that mountain. Oh, I'm not talking about Mount Sinai. I'm talking about Mount Calvary. I'm not talking about with the mediator Moses. I'm talking about the mediator Jesus. I think that when Jesus came and died on the cross, God dealt with the punishment of all of his people. In that moment, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The one who had no sin debt paid a sin debt he did not owe because you and I have a sin debt we cannot pay. The righteous one became unholy so that we were unholy, might be declared righteous. Jesus died in our place so that the condemnation of all the world was placed upon on Jesus Christ and God was reconciling the world unto himself in Christ Jesus for those of us who are in Christ therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the punishment of God was meted out on a mountain not Mount Sinai it was Mount Calvary not through Moses it was through Jesus through the blood of Jesus all of our sins have been swept away Horatio Spafford is exactly right. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Jesus took the punishment that I deserve and God dealt with my sin and your sin and Israel's sin and all of the believers of God's sin dealt with it at the cross of Christ. To God be the glory. Listen, if you're waiting for something else, that's all I got. <laughs> that's, that's the only bullet we got in the holster. The fact that though, they were, though we were sinful, Jesus died in our place. This morning, have you accepted the free gift of grace? Your sin is great, but God's grace is greater. And maybe this morning you need to accept that gift of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you have constructed some sacred cows. What do you need with, what, what should you do with those? Smash them. Destroy them before they destroy you. And maybe this morning during the invitation you just want to come and cast all of your idols at the feet of Christ. Whatever it is that God is prompting you to do, right here, right now, be holy in the sight of a holy God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray that sacred cows are smashed. We pray that lives are surrendered unto you. We pray that sin is confessed. We pray that we are real and honest before a God who is real and honest before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.